0: Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.
1: On oil and gas pricing, system some parameters which are interesting. Uh, You've seen in the paper now that LNG in Europe has reached almost $30. The BTU equivalency is around 6 to 1, so $30 LNG is equivalent to $180 oil. Um, The the European price generally trades at a dollar and a half discount or so from the Japan-Korea price. Um, because of transportation logistics. Uh, really, I think the European price has been pulling the Japan-Korea price up. Uh There's no question that Asia is very short fuel going into the winter of all types, thermal coal, LNG, what have you. There was an article in the paper earlier this week, I think in the Financial Times, where uh, India is said to have only four days of inventory on average of coal in their thermal plants. Uh, and I think the normal would be, I don't know, 15 or 20 days. There, there are obviously some significant supply issues that are impacting uh, the availability of power and the price of power. Pretty well, pretty pretty good um, uh, reporting on China uh, there the different provinces are allocating power because they don't have enough of it so rather than not supply power to the grid uh, they're taking their industrial users and they're telling them that you know they should start like at six in the morning and run till one and then Have another one start at two in the afternoon or one in the afternoon and run till eight at night and trying to allocate the power availability. So there are, there are signs in Asia of, you know, undersupply of fuels and and power that come from the fuels. in Europe, which seems tighter, uh, there, it appears to be two principal causes. Uh, one is in Europe, uh, renewables is mostly wind, uh, just because of solar resource. There's too many clouds and in, in some areas, not enough aerial extent to set up solar arrays. So winds, when you, we, we, we here at Yorktown have not done that much in wind, but we've, we're starting to do stuff in solar and we're, pretty well-informed uh, and engaged in uh, battery storage. But when you develop a wind project, you get a report, much like an engineering report, that you get on an oil reserve or a gas reserve or a mineral reserve like copper or something. And what the meteorologists do is they go back and they predict how much wind you're going to have. Well, a lot of us on the phone are used to variable wind. Uh, and, but, uh, when you're making power and you're trying to figure out, you know, uh, what, you know, whether you can produce the power that you've signed up to produce, uh, it's not just having an afternoon of no wind like we go through, uh, on the North Shore, you know, more frequently than on the South Shore of Long Island. It's, you know, lack of wind for a week or lack of wind for a month or two months. And those patterns happen. Um, I don't think anyone is, I haven't seen any political figure or regulator say it's because of global warming. I think it's just patterns. And so there has been less wind generation in the UK and Europe. The other thing that's happened is uh, a fairly high proportion of Europe's gas. I don't have a specific number, but I'm, I'm thinking something short of half uh, comes from uh Russian gas exports and the Russians have built a, uh, a pipe that comes underwater through the Baltic into Germany called, I think it's called Nord stream. And uh, it's been in the news because uh, when Donald Trump was president, he campaigned against it and uh, tried to use his influence with the European union and the, uh, and the and the German government to not um, not complete it. I guess one of the logics was that the Russians plan to use that that North Stream pipeline to supplant gas that comes to Europe through the Ukraine. Of course, we were we were trying to help the Ukraine stand up to the Russian, uh, you know, uh, military paramilitary incursions. And uh um I think that you know we've been going through an election in Germany and now they have kind of a split between uh the different parties, the uh, uh the uh against socialist and conservative parties. It's gonna take them a couple of months to form a government. Uh and uh <clears throat> so I think this decision to permit the commissioning of the, of the North, North Stream pipeline has been delayed, and the Russians are probably annoyed with that. So it's possible that they're holding back some gas um, exports. It's also possible that they're having problems with one of their big fields. And one of the things you'll see in our country, and I'll come back to this, is that if winter's coming... And uh, the Russian government has a choice between shipping gas to be stored in in Europe and Germany or filling up their own storage so they don't run out of gas when it gets cold. They're going to fill up their own storage. And so um, now, is $30 or $28 sustainable? I don't think so. Um, is... Uh, um, what does it mean for uh, U.S. gas pricing? Well, U.S. gas pricing near months month now has gotten to $6. Um, think of the profit if you have a contract to make LNG along our Gulf Coast, where we turn about 11 b's a day of gas into LNG. I mean, $6 plus $2 liquefaction charge plus uh, a buck or a buck and a half to get it on a ship to Europe, maybe 50 cents to uh, degasify it, uh, you're talking $10 cost and you're getting spot price, you're getting paid $27, $28. So uh, <clears throat> has it helped the U.S. market? Absolutely. I mean, we produce and use around 90 Bs a day, uh, about 5 Bs is imported from Canada, and about 6.5 Bs is exported to Mexico. Uh, so 11 out of our demand of 90, uh, 90 uh, is LNG. Uh, in the middle of 2020, when LNG prices were very low, the S prices were very low. I mean, they were really low. I mean, they were like $4 uh, LNG prices. So rather than use our 11 Bs a day of capacity, we we're only using 3 Bs or... And a half or four B. So, has it helped the U.S. gas price? Absolutely. Um, is the U.S. gas price gonna? It can be like oil, where it trades on net back basis. No, not not yet. Maybe not ever. Um, but um, uh, will a twenty twenty nine dollar price in Europe and Japan, Korea, will that be sustainable? Probably not. Will we have these kinds of prices through? February or March, uh, especially if we have cold weather in Asia and cold weather in Europe and cold weather in North American. Yes, we probably will. Interesting impacts on the US gas market. If you uh wanted to purchase gas for February delivery in Pennsylvania, I think the price would be where where the Marcellus is, the price would be around five or $5.40 or something. On that same month, if you wanted to buy gas for delivery in Boston, it's $20. Now, there are pipes from Pennsylvania to Boston, and the, the tariff is going to be, I don't know, a dollar or something like that. Why is it $20 in Boston? Well, when you get in the middle of winter, uh, your incremental gas, since the pipes uh, get Cold. You can't ship enough gas from Pennsylvania to Boston to, uh, to handle all their requirements. The incremental gas comes from a uh, LNG storage tank in Boston Harbor called the Everest Project and from an offshore buoy. So the incremental gas into Boston and in, when it gets cold is coming from LNG. Well, LNG February price is not quite $20, but I'm but but I mean it's a little more than twenty dollars. But if you want to secure supplies in Boston, that's what it's going to cost. Um, another, uh, I'm, I'm kind of talking gas and power. Another point I'd like to make: I doubt if anyone on the phone owns shares of utilities. But when this happens in Europe, and frankly, when it happens in California, the regulators who are appointed by politically elected uh, Officials, uh, elected politicians, uh, tend to cause the utility to not recover all the incremental costs. For example, uh, the two large utilities in Germany have, in effect, gone through reorganization because, you know, the the Germans authorized uh, uh, closing their nukes uh, and uh, and also uh, doing a lot of wind. Uh, with feed-in tariffs, uh, but the, the utilities who pick up the power and deliver to uh, households were not allowed to fully charge uh, for it. So uh, they had these big, you know, well-run utilities, and they effectively went through kind of reorganization outside of bankruptcy because they weren't allowed to recover all the cost. Um, similarly, in California, the largest utility in California, Pacific Gas and Electric. It's now going through or coming out of its second bankruptcy in 10 years. Similar situation. You know, they they impose all these, you know, they close the nukes. They don't want gas. They want to rely on solar. And then when the market goes haywire, uh, you know, it's the uh, stockholders, of the utility and the lenders who uh, wound up paying the cost. So uh, be careful. Be careful with utility. Uh, all of that been about gas and power. And I guess the main message is these are extraordinarily high prices. There's a lot of dislocation. This transition to low-carbon fuels is pretty hard to pull off. Uh, uh, the, <clears throat> the environmental advocates talk about the missing money problem. In other words, if we're going to go to uh, all renewables, who's going to pay the extra um, the extra cost of that? And uh, the answer is. Probably not the ratepayers. I mean, the ratepayers may pay some. Be careful about the utilities. Also, be careful about <clears throat> companies that have contracts with utilities, uh, because uh, there's two two messages for uh, from the governors to their regulators. One, don't have the average bill paid by a customer, a residential customer, go up. Secondly. Don't have blackouts like they had in Texas in those five days in February. Um, so it's a pretty difficult situation to, uh, to, uh, to uh, cope with. Uh, I've talked a lot about gas. I think I'll just leave oil till next week. Just there was an OPEC meeting. They decided just to increase 400,000 barrels a day per month. Uh, uh, you know, the Biden administration, they'd asked them to do more they did, I think, what was a sensible thing. They have projections uh, from their staff that show that inventory drawdowns on a worldwide basis are slowing down, that uh, if they just go up by 400,000 barrels a day per month, they'll, by sometime <clears throat> in the spring and when they're through winter, uh, the market will be completely balanced. And, and rather than drawing down inventory, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll be adding inventories during the summer and then drawing it down in the winter, uh, when it's colder in the northern atmosphere, northern hemisphere. So, uh, I'll get into it more next week. Uh, with regard to interest rates, um, there's more and more criticism of this Fed for being too slow to start to taper. And, uh, um, Jay Powell, the chairman, has been very clear that he wants to you know, he doesn't want to have a taper tantrum. He doesn't want to have the capital markets surprised by some move from the Fed. But, and maybe with the benefit of hindsight, looking back a year or two from now, maybe they they won't have been done it um, exactly right. But there's a consensus amongst former Fed officials and uh, economists working in the private sector that, that the Fed has been too slow to uh, get started with. Stopping adding to its balance sheet. Um, the um, how do you account for even now uh, the uh, the ten year bond base rate in our economy being one and a half percent when the inflation rate as measured, not 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 estimated, is you know, two and a half or three percent. So you have negative interest rates. I think I think it's the liquidity, the massive liquidity, the fact that the Fed balance sheet is like $8 trillion and are getting to $8 trillion. And it was like four before uh, COVID-19 uh, hit. And it was one and a half trillion before they lo- fell in love with quantitative easing to, to cope with the recovery from the 08 recession. So um, it just created a lot of flexibility, or a lot of liquidity in the economy. And the liquidity looks for a home and so you can say, wait, hey, stock markets are overvalued or, uh, uh, the price of collectibles is overvalued because there's too much liquidity. I mean, art or jewelry or stuff. Well, maybe, maybe the government bond market is overvalued because of this liquidity. At some point, the liquidity will start to be reduced and then we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, and with that, I, chewed up way too much of the hour. We now have about 15, less than 15 minutes to get into uh, Mike's uh, uh, ruminations. You'll remember that we uh, set ourselves a really good idea, I think, with the benefit of uh, seeing what Mike's been able to come up with, to look for recent public IPOs that didn't need to go public. In other words, they didn't need to go public to raise money. They probably could have sold to a competitor or to, you know, someone who wanted to integrate vertically or whatnot, but they decide to hang on and they had cash flow or weren't chewing through too much money, we've come up with some really interesting companies. And with that, I mean, the the one now that I've gotten interested in, I reserve the right to fall out of interest, you know, soon or over the weekend or something, is not just uh, uh, software as a service or SaaS, but software that's used to uh, try to to uh, deal with all the actors out there who get into uh, 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 the internet storage or wherever and then ask for ransom. And with that, over to you, Mike. Sure, sounds
0: good. So last week we touched on some of the like valuation metrics of two particular companies within uh, cybersecurity that we think are pretty interesting. Uh, so today what I want to do is take a quick step back kind of do a higher level overview of security and why it's becoming more important. Um, And then we'll dive into the area of cybersecurity where these two companies play, uh, which is called endpoint security. And we'll go a little bit deeper on the companies uh, and, and feel free to interject if you've got questions as we go. Uh, So, COVID obviously accelerated digitization. Uh, we talked about that with some of the other other businesses we've looked at that are doing quite well through the pandemic. Um, that has caused businesses to be more dependent on digital processes. Uh, but that's also expanded the attack surface area for businesses. And, and part of that's driven by the work from home piece. Uh, I'd say a good, good chunk of it's driven by work from home because you'll uh, an organization where typically people work from home, from the office, they could build a security system that protects the local network. But once people are working from home, they have more endpoints, essentially more potential vulnerabilities uh, to their their data resources. Um, The effect of COVID on the cyber threat landscape is confirmed by the FBI's Internet Crime Report 2020, where they highlighted that they're just frankly, more opportunities for fraud for both individuals and businesses, and they're seeing far more attacks than they had before. Um, this is reiterated by uh, actually a really good research report from Morgan Stanley, where they they surveyed a bunch of CFO CSOs, Chief Security Officers. Um, they resoundingly said that the reasons for incremental spend is the height, uh, heightened security threat environment, Which uh, their top reason for that is the increase in remote computing and work from home. So I I think this was a good uh, it lays a good groundwork as to why security is important. Um, So let's take a look at the two areas of of security spending that are likely to be the most the fastest growing areas. Um, And that's identity and access management. So think of that as single sign-on and user security to make sure the right people are logging into your system. And the second one is endpoint security. So today we're going to focus on endpoint security. I think that we're going to do another one of these and talk more in-depth about identity and access management. But for today, let's focus on endpoint security. So... Endpoint security is the practice of securing endpoints. And for clarity, an endpoint is a remote computing device that communicates back and forth with the network. So that's your laptop, desktop, uh, mobile phone, et cetera. This could be, like in the case of Colonial Pipeline, it could be a piece of equipment that communicates to a network, for example. Uh, so within endpoint security, endpoint detection and response, known as EDR, is an integrated endpoint security solution that combines real-time continuous monitoring and collection of endpoint data, essentially monitoring the monitoring the traffic and activity of those endpoints with automated response and analysis capabilities. EDR systems protect endpoints on the network, like a PC or an iPhone or in the cloud from cybersecurity threats by installing an agent, essentially a piece of software on endpoint. And for those of you that remember installing Symantec or McAfee, McAfee or one of the other antivirus softwares on their computer, essentially it's a similar process where each device has some sort of uh, uh, an agent, a software agent installed on it. Um, as the volume and sophistication of cybersecurity threats have steadily grown, so is the need for more advanced endpoint and security solutions. So beyond EDR, there's another term that's floating around that's pioneered by one of the companies that we're going to talk about today called XDR which really is an extension of EDR where it correlates the activity that happens on the endpoints in a given network and sometimes across networks that uh, in order to identify new threats so if it's essentially it's looking for activity that is anomalous uh, and what's exciting about that is that because there's a lot of data involved in this It's a really good use case for artificial intelligence and machine learning type technologies. Uh, the, the, The real selling point for this is that instead of just notifying your security team of a potential threat, with this technology, they're able to identify the threat and take actions without having a person involved in order to contain
1: or stop the threat. And, uh, based on the reporting from the colonial management, uh, and both, and including afterwards when they were questioned by, uh, by, uh, by, uh, by, you know, con- congressional, uh, inquiry, um uh, the particular intrusion into their systems and a colonial system is huge. I mean, it, it, it probably carries 30, 40% of the gasoline and diesel consumed in a swath from, uh, Florida to, uh, to, uh, up to New York and into Massachusetts. So it's a massive, massive system, multi-owned. So more than able to support any purity expense and, and, you know, handling gasoline and diesel, you know, which burn and, you know, cause all kinds of problems. Um, Apparently, the, the, uh, the hackers had entered the system and were there for a month or two based on the testimonies. So I'm kind of intrigued by this because presumably what you can do by monitoring communications within your system is figure out when something is out of a normal pattern or if I misstated that. might
0: No, you're, you're spot on. And, and the way they might identify that sure they could identify it when you they initially entered the system which is it could be through a phishing uh, phishing type of scam it could be through a Microsoft Word or Excel document with some VBA code in it that that launches something but it, essentially what they try to do is get in one door and then establish ways to connect to the outside world so they can get more software downloaded and installed on machines throughout the network so instead of trying to load everything in at once, really they're just looking for one, a foot in the door, and then over time to develop the infrastructure needed to take down uh, the company and ultimately hold them ransom, which is exactly the case of the Colonial Pipeline issue. So, so yes, yeah, so, which is, so the two companies that we're going to talk about are Sentinel One and CrowdStrike. They are, uh, CrowdStrike was kind of the leader in endpoint um, e- EDR. Um, Sentinel-1 is mo- more of a newer entrant to the endpoint security space. They are the ones that have pioneered this XDR philosophy, which aims to make cybersecurity defense more autonomous. Sentinel-1 prides itself on having fended off cyber attacks, notably Sunburst, which was the Solar Winds one. Um, they claimed that all of their customers were 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 protected from it. Um, The CEO has openly stated that CrowdStrike is the company's main competitor. Um, CrowdStrike has actually recently acquired an XDR-type competitor called Humio earlier this year, I think in January. Um, I thought it was uh, sort of, I think it's a defensive move in some respect, and it was probably, from their perspective, cheaper to buy than try to build and develop that technology in-house. Based on feedback from customers, Sentinel-1 appears to have a lower level of administrative overhead, and that's likely to do with the fact that the software is actually designed to be more autonomous, where CrowdStrike is designed to be run and managed by a, an organization within a larger company where the chief security officer often has a staff uh, which is responsible for this stuff. Sentinel-1 may slide into a lighter or smaller organization much easier that may not already have all those resources. So I think that the two companies are approaching slightly different target market markets. Um, the, let's see more on Sentinel one, EDR capabilities, maybe not ex- as extensive as crowd but basic information is available. And again, without sufficient resources to evaluate the extra data, it may not even be valuable anyways to, To have it. Uh, The other thing that they pointed out is that it's easy to use and relatively affordable, given uh, the cost of the other solutions. CrowdStrike, on the other hand, um, their IPO was in 2019. Uh, I believe at the time, that was the largest cybersecurity IPO at about $700 million raised. Uh, Sentinel Ones is now the largest at uh, about $1.2 billion raised. In an interview after the CrowdStrike IPO, the the CEO kind of likened uh, CrowdStrike to Salesforce as in like the, the cloud security solution. Uh, it's, it appears that that vision isn't entirely wrong. It is one of few cloud-based solutions that doesn't require a heavy amount of hand-holding on the part of the uh, vendor. Most, most of these vendors uh, outside of Sentinel-1 and CrowdStrike tend to require a lot of uh, a lot of use of their employees and often build them out as analysts to work with the companies. So it's a little bit lighter of a model. Uh, CrowdStrike is more mature than Sentinel One, has uh, performed well, especially through the pandemic. I think revenue growth rate, as we mentioned last year, last week, was, is at north of 100%. Um, feedback from customers, they, it seems like it's a more mature product. Uh, and has a farther reach as far as the product offerings than than other competitors. It's also known to be expensive, and uh, and better for companies with with larger security personnel and staff. I, I think investor expectations are high for both companies, especially coming out of the pandemic. Target revenue growth rates for. Sentinel-1 are 104% for this year, 70% for the following year, and 65% for two years out. Uh, CrowdStrike is 61, 38, and 32. Uh, one takeaway here is that analysts are expecting for both companies a relatively sharp drop-off in growth after this year. I'd imagine that is based on the expectation that the growth in the number of endpoints per organization may slow down. Um, but we could likely expect that the total adoption of this technology among and by organizations will continue. So looking forward, probably the key metric that I'm interested in to see how it changes is the net retention rate, which we've discussed before. Uh, Currently for Sentinel one, that's 125%. And for CrowdStrike, that's 120%. We're
1: kind of run out of time, but, uh, We'll explain next week how uh, how your retention rate can be more than 100%. I think it has something to do with the value of the contract. But uh, we're going to try to learn more about these companies and how they how they account for themselves. There's a bunch of deferred revenue in each current asset account. Uh, CrowdStrike is cash flow positive now. Fentanyl uh, is not. Uh, Sentinel does have a billion and a half of cash on hand, which they raised in the public offering. So they're not going to run out of money anytime soon. And Mike seems to think, and we'll get into more of this next week, that Sentinel might be just a few quarters away from being cash flow positive. They would be cash flow positive, except that they have big sales staff to try to grow. And, uh, the, the investors in these businesses, uh, and which is includes you know the SaaS area generally uh, like to say that there would be free cash flow if you didn't run such a large sales staff. You know I'm a little bit show me on that question, but we'll we'll spend some more time next week on these two companies. In the meantime, everyone stay well, and uh, we'll talk next week. Take care, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.